morning, before I read our scripture lesson, I just want to say a quick word about what we're starting this morning. We're starting a new sermon series for the next four weeks called Supporting Actors. So it is award season, right? And everyone's being nominated and people are winning and people are getting snubbed and all of this sort of stuff. And um, so I thought it might be interesting for us to look at some characters from scripture that maybe aren't as well known. Uh, maybe you've heard of them before. Um, but you don't know a whole lot about them. Uh, and that, the reason why you don't know a whole lot about them is because there's not a whole lot written about them. So uh, we're going to look at some of these under-the-radar characters uh, for the next few weeks. And our uh, supporting actor for this morning is the prophet Nathan. So who's heard of Nathan? Oh, this is perfect. I love this. <laughs> it's like I'm actually, we're actually doing something here this morning. <laughs> so... Our scripture lesson for this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13a, and I'll be reading from the Common English Bible. Listen now for God's word to you. So the, Lord, so the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, There were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing. Just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. You are that man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave your master's house to you and gave his wives to your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with his sword and taken his wife as your own. You used the Ammonites to kill him. Because of that, you, are dis- you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own. The sword will never leave your own house. This is what the Lord says. I am making trouble come against you from inside your own family. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives away and give them to your friend, and he will have relations with your wives in broad daylight. You did what you, you did, what you did secretly, but I will do what I am doing before all of Israel in the light of the day. I have sinned against the Lord, David said to Nathan. This is the Word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you go to any place that sells coffee and you buy yourself a a cup of hot coffee, you'll see there on the side of your cup a warning that seems a little unnecessary. It says, caution contents hot. Of course it is. We ordered a hot coffee. It better be hot, right? But that warning is on the side of our coffee cups because of something that happened back in 1992 with the 79-year-old Stella Liebeck, who was sitting in the passenger seat of her grandson's car trying to balance this cup of hot coffee she had because there were no cup holders in her car. They weren't standard on every vehicle back then. 
uh, which was surprising to me to hear. So she's balancing her cup of coffee, trying to put her cream and sugar into it when the coffee spills, and she sustained third-degree burns on her thighs. And originally, she just wanted to sue McDonald's to cover her medical costs, but McDonald's lowballed her, and so we know about the ensuing lawsuit that resulted in her receiving $3 million in damages, although it was later on lowered to less than a million dollars. And now this event has become kind of a joke among the American public, right? About the litigiousness of American, American society. The coffee's hot. We expect it to be hot, and she burned herself. Why are we putting labels on that? Why are people being sued for this? But that doesn't really get at the full story. See, the truth was is that McDonald's at that time was selling coffee that was way too hot than what it, for what it was supposed to be, and Stella Liebeck was not the only one who got burned from the contents of McDonald's coffee. There were 700 people, adults and children included, who had been burned by McDonald's overly hot coffee in the past decade, and McDonald's knew about it. So now we have this warning on the side of our cup that says, caution contents hot. It's important that we have warnings even when we're walking into something that we expect, being warned about what we're getting ourselves into that God does the same thing when it comes to God's people, when it comes to having a king. So God's power is what liberated the people, the Hebrews, from enslavement in Egypt. God, by these mighty deeds, led them out of enslavement into the land of promise. And during this time between the Exodus and between a little bit before we, the, the story that we read this morning, the people really formed a sort of alternative community. Ingrained in their law, and the law that Moses receives, is the commandment to care for the widow and the orphan, to watch over the vulnerable in their society. They, they form this sort of alternative community. And in this time, the people have no king. That God, it seems, is allergic to what kings do. God saw what Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, did to the Hebrews, and so God doesn't really want a king. But as the years go on, and to be more specific, a few hundred years go by, the people look around at the other nations surrounding them and they say, well, everyone else has a king. We should have a king too. But God issues a warning to them, a, a caution contents hot. In the very beginning of 1 Samuel, God speaking through the prophet Samuel says that if you have a king, this is what's going to happen. He will take from you. He will take your sons and conscript them to fight in his wars. He will take your sons to produce the machinery of warfare. He will take your daughters to produce goods and services for the wealthy and powerful few. He will take from your, from your children. He will take taxes to line his own pocket. He will take from you and you will be his slaves. Warning, caution, contents hot. What do the people say to God? Ah, oh, God, you worry too much. Let's have a king. And so God allows for the people to have a king. But God is not willing to leave the people on their own under the authority of this king, kings who are known to abusing their power. And so God appoints for there to be prophets, prophets who speak on behalf of God to the king, who remind the king of whose authority they're actually under, that they think that they rule all on their own, but truly they report to God. The prophet is there to remind the king of his responsibility to care for those who are vulnerable, who are hurting, who are at risk, the widow and the orphan. 
Every prophet, every king has a prophet. Uh, Elijah is the, the prophet to the notorious king Ahab. Samuel is the king to Israel's fir- or the prophet to Israel's first king, uh, the disastrous reign of King Saul. Isaiah is prophet to King Hezekiah. And then here we meet our supporting actor for this morning. The prophet Nathan is responsible for keeping King David in line. And relatively speaking, Nathan has a pretty easy job when it comes to the prophets, that David is regarded as like the gold standard of kings in Israel's history. We just made it through the season of Advent where we hear about the one who comes to continue on David's kingdom forever and ever. In fact, the last time that Nathan saw David before this story, it was to tell David how pleased God was with him that God is going to make sure that David's kingdom never ends. David's a a national hero. David's the the George Washington of ancient Israel. But then Nathan hears a word about a story that breaks the news cycle, a story that is so horrifying that it changes Israel and David forever. The story goes that David was in the middle of a war with the Ammonites, and Tradition, standard, what the king typically did in this society was he went to war with his troops. But David has enough people to fight for him. He's taken sons to fight in his wars, and so he decides to stay home in his palace and surrounded by all of the creature comforts and the luxuries that are there. And one evening while he's fanning himself and cooling off in the evening breeze, he looks down and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. And let me just say, this is normal. This is cultural practice. She's, think of her, she's in the bathroom just simply trying to practice good hygiene. And David sees her, and he's overcome with lust for her. And so he sends one of his proxies to go find out who she is. And they report back, and her exceptionally hyphenated name is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Already, her personhood is sort of being erased as her identity is tied to the men in her life. And so David then sends his same proxy back to go and to take Bathsheba and to bring her back. And David sleeps with Bathsheba. And now this story has often been posed as sort of like a a sultry affair, as if it would end up on the the cover of the National Enquirer or something like that, and we would consume it for for all the gossip that it produces. But that would assume that Bathsheba has some powers to, to agency. That Bathsheba is being summoned by the king. She has no ability to say no. So I think that this story is best described not as an affair, but as an assault. That David assaults Bathsheba. And that one event causes a cascade of things to unfold. Bathsheba reports back to David that as a result of his actions, she's pregnant. And so David, in order to cover up his sins, he calls back her husband, Uriah the Hittite, who's fighting the Ammonites on his behalf, brings him back and says, you know, Uriah, you're such a great soldier. Why don't you have a furlough on me? Go home and sleep with your wife. You know what he's getting at here, right? Go home and sleep with your wife. But Uriah, being the honorable soldier that he is, decides to sleep on the doorstep of his house. And David says, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you take advantage of my generous gift to you? And Uriah says, well, how can I do that when all of my my fellow soldiers are out there fighting? 
And so David tries to get Uriah drunk, and that doesn't work. And, and so finally, David flies off in a fit of rage, and he sends Uriah back to the front lines with the command to his general, sealed in an envelope, I'm sure, uh, one of those parchments, right? An envelope, didn't have those then. Uh, <laughs> sends him back to the front line with the commandment to his general to put Uriah at the front of the line where the fiercest fighting is taking place and to take a big step back so that he's struck down by the Ammonites. And this is what happens, and Bathsheba grieves for her husband before David comes and takes her to be his wife. And so this is the story that Nathan hears, that is relayed to him. Sexual assault, murder, conspiracy, all of these things going on. And Nathan faces the first real challenge of his career, that even David, the gold standard of kings, does what God warned the people the king would do. David takes. And so what is Nathan to do? Is Nathan going to walk into David's uh, courtroom and, and immediately accuse him? That's dangerous business, as you can imagine. Being a prophet's not always the most safe profession, right? Walking into a king and telling him the things they've done wrong. Also, if he directly approaches David, David could shift the blame a little bit. So Nathan does something that I think is incredibly creative. He tells David a story, a story that's meant to provoke a crisis of conscience for David. He says, David, I heard a report from one of your cities that there was a, a rich man there who had more than the eye could see, flocks and herds that were innumerable, wealth that was incalculable. And then in that same city, there was also a poor man who had almost nothing. All he had was one tiny little ewe lamb that he loved with all his heart. He fed her from his hand. He let her sleep in the bed with him like we do with our dogs. And he, he loved that lamb. <laughs> Passing notes in church. Um, but then one day, the rich man had an out-of-town guest, and he didn't want to affect his bottom line. So instead of taking from his innumerable number of sheep, he goes and takes the tiny little ewe lamb of the poor man, and he slaughters it and feeds it to his guests. David, hearing this, is enraged. He says, who is that man who did those things? Bring him in here so that I might judge him. He should pay back that poor man seven times what he, what he took from the poor man. Nathan has provoked a crisis of conscience for David, that he has made David feel once again. I wonder if as David hears this story, he is brought back once again to his father's sheep, to when he was a shepherd. That David knew what it was like to care for vulnerable creatures to protect them. How many times did he run off predators who were bent on taking the sheep? Did David, as he hear this story, did he, did he remember what it was like to smell the sheep or to, to feel the, the, their wool? That David is brought back to this moment that I imagine that this is why God chooses David to be king, because he knows what it means to care for vulnerable people. I think this was God's hope. We read it in the story where he's anointed as king, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God sees David's heart. 
But of course, you know what the saying is, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And over time, David has become numb. He's lost his ability to feel. This is what Walter Brueggemann in his seminal book, The Prophetic Imagination, calls a royal consciousness. That David is no longer affected by the pain and the suffering around him. He is indifferent. He's apathetic. He does not care anymore. He's numb. But the prophet's job, Brueggemann says, is to cut across the numbness. It's to make us feel again. It's to cause this crisis of conscience within us so that we might respond. Who is that man, David says. That's when Nathan springs it on him and says, David, you are that man. That God had given you more than you could have ever wanted or imagined or dreamed of. And if that had been too little, God would have given you even more. But you have taken the wife or the the husband of, of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, and you have struck him down and taken Bathsheba as your own. And that's to that David responds, I have sinned. Nathan cutting across the numbness, the apathy, the indifference. And that's what prophets have always done, from Nathan up until the modern time. And, and on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we remind ourselves, remember one that we would rightly call a prophet, one who knew what it meant to cut across the numbness, to remind us of the work for racial justice. And it's important, I think, to note that as much as we respect Martin Luther King Jr. now, as much as we remember him fondly and the the civil rights movement fondly now, it's important to remember that those who cut across the numbness of society are not always the most welcome people. That Martin Luther King Jr. in his own time was viewed as a disturber of the peace, as a rabble-rouser, as a troublemaker, and the movement that he inspired was seen as moving too fast in its own time. And nowhere was this more apparent than when it came to the issue of voting rights. So back in 1964, shortly after Martin Luther King had won the Nobel Peace Prize, he went to Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, and implored him to move forward the Voting Rights Act, to which Johnson was responded with sort of evasiveness. He said, He said, the American public is tired of the civil rights movement. It's moving too fast. So we'll get to the Voting Rights Act in late 1965 or maybe 1966. Numbness in the Oval Office, in the halls of Congress, and in the American society at large. But the prophet's job is to to cut across the numbness. And so starting in early 1965, King and and other leaders from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began staging marches to the courthouse in Selma, in Selma, Alabama. Selma, Alabama at that time was sort of a a poster child, an example of the issue with voting rights, because only 1% of the black population in that particular county in Alabama was registered to vote. And so they would stage these daily marches from Brown Chapel to the courthouse in Selma, simply demanding the right to, be, to vote. And as this demand increased, so did the, the arrest, and that increased the passion for the movement. And so then finally, in uh, March of 1965, uh, John Lewis and one of Dr. King's uh, uh, secretaries, a man named Hosea Williams, they staged a march with 525 other marchers across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where they were then immediately met by 200 Alabama state troopers. 
And the, the marchers said, we'd like to speak to the mayor. And that request was immediately denied. And the Alabama state troopers told them they had two minutes to disperse. But only after one minute, the troopers descended on the marchers. And those events became known as Bloody Sunday. Men, women, and children beaten and clubbed simply as they were trying to run away, some of them fleeing back into their own churches. This violence taking place in Selma, Alabama. And ABC News was there filming what was happening. And they interrupted regularly scheduled programming to show what was happening in Selma, Alabama. You want to know what the program they interrupted was? And this is true. A program detailing Nazi war crimes. Their programming interrupted by something that was happening not a long time ago, not in another place, but right there in their own society. And the result of Bloody Sunday was an increased swell in support for the, Civil, for the Voting Rights Act. The American public was appalled by what they saw, and, and President Johnson was equally appalled by that. The very next day, he called for the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And by August of 1965, just four months after Bloody Sunday, the Voting Rights Act passed. None of that would have happened, or as quickly as it did, or even at all, if it had not been for those who cut across the numbness, cut across the numbness in the Oval Office, in the halls of Congress, and among the American public, stirring feeling within us once again. And that's what the, the prophets do. That's what the prophets who are still around us do. They, they cut across the numbness of our lives. That there are still those who are cutting across the numbness when it comes to issues of racial justice and injustice. A reminder to us that even as we celebrate Martin Luther King weekend, the work is not over. There is still the work towards racial justice that needs to be done. That there are, are still those who cut across the numbness when it comes to discrimination against our LGBTQ siblings, calling us to greater love and inclusivity. That there are, are those who cut across the numbness when it comes to the future of our planet, our home, God's gift to us. Pay attention to the ones who cut across the numbness. Pay attention to the ones who cause feeling to churn within you because it just may be God's voice speaking to you, calling to you, calling you to greater love and justice and inclusivity. We give thanks for the prophet Nathan and for Martin Luther King and for all of those who continue to cut across the numbness of our lives and our society. Thanks be to God. Amen.